Hello friends, this is the AlphaList podcast. I am your host Toby. The goal of the AlphaList podcast is to empower CTOs with the info and insight they need to make the best decisions for their company. We do this by hosting top thought leaders and picking their brains for insights into technical leadership and tech trends. If you believe in the power of accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. Plus, if you're an experienced CTO, you will love the discussion happening in our Slack space where over 600 CTOs are sharing insights or visit one of our events. Just go to alphalist.com to apply. This technology tip of the month is proudly presented by our partner CloudFlight. AI is a hotly debated topic among CTOs uh, as well as others. According to Bitcom, 70% consider AI important, but only 10% actually use AI. And amongst fellow CTOs, I know that a lot of us pretend using AI, but don't actually do that. Why? Uncertainty, disruption of existing processes, costs, and lack of know-how. Especially in the areas of production, products, marketing and sales, and logistics, AI can optimize processes, reduce costs, and increase productivity. Examples. Act before a machine or system fails, predictive maintenance, detect material defects early, computer vision, and automate recurring activities, intelligent data processing. CloudFlight helps to identify the right areas of application in the enterprise and shows ROI rather than just costs. CloudFlight empowers companies to make a digital difference with customized solutions. If you want to know more, just visit cloudflight.io slash AI. Welcome to the Alphalist podcast. I am your host, Toby. And today I have a founder with like a, a huge history. Um, it's Renault Visage. He founded Eventbrite, bootstrapped it first, um, IPO'd it later, um, was in the supervisory board for ages, is now investor um, and, and working as a venture partner at Point9. And today we're here to talk about his learnings um, and, and his journey. Uh, so, uh, welcome, Renaud. Thanks, Toby, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. What, what, was that was that a good introduction? Was that uh, was that fair? Yeah, that's a good summary. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Maybe we start with like one of the um, or the thing I typically do um, with your personal journey as a as a nerd as a geek uh, from from zero to Eventbrite CTO. How did that work out? Um, so. Not in a direct way. I got my training as a civil engineer, so I was not destined to work on internet technologies. Um, but I, I was, um, so I started my career as an environmental engineer. I was cleaning up polluted sites uh, in San Francisco. I spent my last year of study in the US and stayed there afterwards. Um, and that, that was the late 90s, so a, a great time for the internet uh, revolution. Uh, I was looking at it from the outside and seeing all these great companies being founded and scaled to thousands of employees very quickly. And I, I got excited, personally, uh, excited about the, the power that an individual can have to create a destination that people can enjoy all around the world. 
And that seemed fascinating to me. So I, I started learning on the side. Uh, I was working on, on uh, physical sites from like 5 a.m. to 7 p.m. But after that, when I came home, I started reading books about the web technologies that were in place at the time. They were very simple compared to what exists now, but still you had to understand what a server was, how to configure it, how to write web pages, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, all these cool technologies that were the basis of uh, what the internet has become. And uh, I did that more and more. I started doing it for my environmental consulting firm. I, I did a, a web layer on top of their accounting software because I, I needed that on a daily basis to run my projects. And then got better and better at it and started looking at all the data models that the accounting software had. Uh, which was very complex, but the I data, was, data models. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was uh, pre-web data models, very okay. complex and entangled, and they had just uh, a UI from a CD-ROM that you installed on computers. <laughs> so I thought we could do better, and uh, that's what I did for for my company. And then in 2000, I decided to become uh, officially a, a software developer. So I took a, a job at the photo sharing startup. I love photography, so it was. Uh, I only had one interview. I took it as soon as I got it. It was perfect match photography. Uh, web development and it was quite a wild ride uh, for my first startup. We were uh, in the height of the dot-com, but right before the dot-com crash. So I saw everything from the inside as to uh, how companies could get very quickly inflated and, and deflated as quickly when funding run dry. Okay. Uh, which, which, which language or, or tech stack did you get started with? I started with uh, ASP, which was Microsoft's uh, oh, really? free C-sharp type uh, development environments. It was very script-based, uh, no objects, very simple, but uh, quite powerful. I created some personal websites as well, uh, just for the fun of it. It was all about learning and, and creating interfaces that people couldn't interact with. Okay. And how did that lead to Eventbrite? Uh, it led to Eventbrite because I, someone I was working with at the photo sharing site went on to work uh, for the company that my co-founder at Eventbrite started before Eventbrite. Uh, it was called Zoom. It was a money remittance platform based on top of PayPal that allowed uh, anyone to send money uh, abroad, especially in countries that where it was difficult to do so. Um, and when Kevin, my co-founder, left Zoom, he asked around. Uh, he needed a technical founder to join him on, on the futurely named Eventbrite project. Uh, and then my friend recommended me. We had a chat. Uh, he, he was starting this with his uh, uh, girlfriend at the time. They had met a few months ago. And um, I joined them as uh, the third co-founder. And that's Julia, the current CEO of Eventbrite, right? Exactly, yes. Ah, uh, yeah, great. Hello. Like, <laughs> it's, it's still like the same setup. Um, well, Kevin was the CEO first for yeah. about 10 years, and then uh, he gave up his role and became executive chairman, and she took over. And, and why did she actually live in the US? I mean, you're from Paris, right, originally? I'm from France. I moved around a lot in France. I, I only lived in Paris when I was very little, uh, but I've always loved Paris and that's where I live now. I, I came back 
many times over the years I, as we were building Eventbrite, I tried to be the spokesperson for the company in, in Europe. So I attended a lot of tech events, uh, took part in a lot of like accelerators and incubators, tried to bring back some of this Silicon Valley mentality back to Europe. Uh, and in doing so, I spent more and more time in, in Paris and, and really enjoyed the city. Okay. Um, and, and at first you bootstrapped Eventbrite, which was kind of unusual for that time, right? Or, or was it was it was it a typical thing to do? I think it was more common then um, because there was less venture capital for early stage, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, but my co-founder had gone through uh, fundraising uh, for Zoom before, so he understood the complexity of it and what you needed to have in terms of uh, traction and, and um, team size to be able to raise properly. And he, ha he had made some cash through Zoom. So he invested 250K in the company as uh, the first check. Um, and we lived on that for, for quite a while, actually. It was a pretty efficient setup. They were not taking any salaries. I was paid very little at the beginning. Um, and we tried to make the best product we could in, in, with the least amount of resources we could spend. So you were, were hustling for a while. <laughs> exactly. I think being scrappy is definitely a virtue for a lot of companies. It brings creativity and, yeah. and you, you can do a lot with not very much, especially nowadays where there's so many different uh, frameworks in, in technology stacks that allow yeah, you to, yeah, to yeah. build very quickly. Well, I think um, if you do it today, um, like tech-wise, you have to really try to keep it simple, right? Um, I mean, that was like easier back then, I, I assume. You you just had like little choice in comparison to today, right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, we built a, a custom framework that was very basic. I yeah, had a uh, data, data layer, data ORM type of thing that we had created. Uh, I think it, the entire site was one file at the time when we started. So very basic, no dependencies. I so think today so, you, sounds like a typical PHP project or? No, it was a Python project. Python, okay. Yeah, we decided oh, cool. to go with Python early on. Um, but yes, keeping it simple is both, I think, easier at the time because there were no frameworks. Uh, but harder now because you have a lot of power coming with all these frameworks and you need to set things up the right way, I think. But it's it's always the trick, I think, as especially as you scale, to keep things simple, mm -hmm. keep things manageable for one person to grasp. Um, so that maybe one piece of advice for people on the call is to remember that as you your number of engineers on your team grows, you still need them to be efficient and understand their domain in a very simple way. And that's hard to keep, I think, over time. Absolutely. Um, I also think, like, I see a lot of B2B SaaS companies um, that, that are bootstrapped. Um, what, what most of them really manage is, is to keep it simple um, because they don't have so many resources um, and And I like the idea of, of, of being, being, being frugal on, on different technologies. Um, even though I, I, I have to admit, I did it wrong like a few times and, and but that's <laughs> how you learn, right? Um, exactly. I think there's a, a nod to keeping things simple. We have to resist the temptation of engineers wanting to explore the next new shiny object that's yeah. been launched and it's yeah. so cool, but 
is it going to really help your users? Do they really care what you use in the backend? Uh, no, they don't. They, so think about uh, your product first and your engineers second, because they're the ones who, who need to keep the momentum going and keep improving to deliver the customer value that you want to bring to the market. Absolutely. Um, would you say that's also the responsibility of the CTO to like manage the simplicity or complexity um, and, and kind of be the conservative person in the room? I don't know if it's conservative. I think it's being very um, forward thinking in a way, because you know the company is going to expand. Your, your engineers don't really care. They're building product. They're not thinking what does the company look like in, in five, 10 years from now when you have hundreds of engineers coding your way. Um, so it's definitely your responsibility as a your engineering leader to think about how you, you future-proof your uh, code base, making sure it's uh, well-documented, for example, something we didn't do at all at the beginning, we just wrote code as fast as we could, didn't have any tests to validate that things were working as expected, didn't have any documentation. But then as we started adding people to the team, uh, it became obvious that this was a really important area to invest in. And the longer you left it, the worse it would become. Uh, so at some point, you have to bite the bullet to the uh, The, the work you haven't done in the past, get up to par as to what is expected for, for new people joining the team to be as, as efficient as quickly as possible. And that's hard, I think, for companies that don't necessarily know that they're going to be around for 10 years. You, you just think about the next day when you're in startup mode, when it's just you coding, for example. Like, who cares about documenting my code. I, I understand it well. Why should I bother and waste precious time uh, mm -hmm. thinking about the future? But when you're in the future, then it becomes more obvious why you should have. So that, I think that's where experience really matters and having the right people join the team at the right times to up-level uh, the entire way you develop software. When um, at Eventbrite, um, did you hire your first developer? First developer was a friend of mine. Uh, I think it was six months after we started, but he was on a contract, uh, didn't become an employee. We had a couple of these. We had an intern for a while. Again, bootstrapping, scrappy, picking people who were not too, uh, uh, too costly, first of all, and that were good enough to contribute. We did waste a lot of time, I think, not hiring senior people from the get-go. So if you're able to raise for a startup very early, um, I would recommend you hire as senior and talented as possible from the uh, get-go. So it, it accelerates the, the path to uh, product market fit in a, in a big way if you do that. Mm -hmm. So don't um, follow our example, I would say. Well, I think it also... Like as of today, I think in this remote first world, um, like seniority became more important. Um, For sure. I don't think everybody's made to work in a remote environment. Yeah. Developers are a bit more like that because they, they like to be in the flow, in their bubble. So being isolated and at home, if you have the peace at home, which not everybody has, can be a great thing. Uh, but if you have uh, kids running around and a uh, house to manage, that becomes much harder. Yeah. So yeah. make sure people are senior in working from home if you hire working from home. 
did you did you do that at Eventbrite, or did that just just switch uh, with with the mode of working just switch with Corona? Uh, it depend on depended on the people. So we hired a few remote employees over the years. I was remote part of the time. I was spending my time between Paris and San Francisco for quite a few years. Um, and I always worked better from home in my little bubble, isolated from distractions, uh, coffee breaks, uh, fun chats with coworkers, and all the things that come with being in an office. Yeah, but that that all gets lost then, right? Or how do you see that? Um, no, I think you can maintain it, but you, you need the physical contact once in a while. So I would go regularly to the office, uh, have coffee, have drinks, have dinners, have all the social elements of building a team together. Especially if you're a leader, I think you cannot be remote 100% of the time. Otherwise, you'll never build a, a very cohesive and, and um, team that, that bonds and gels in a way that office teams tend to build up. Yeah, um I mean, that's also the reason why events still exist, right? That you build trust in the real world, typically. Um, and, and, and that didn't really work out with virtual events uh, during COVID, um, from, from my perspective. I mean, you first thought, okay, this could be like a huge shift, but now it's all back. <laughs> yeah, we, I mean, we asked ourselves the, the question, I think, in a big way. In the beginning of COVID, when we lost uh, a large part of our revenue, uh, physical events just didn't happen worldwide very quickly. And um, we had the op option or, or the opportunity, I would say, to, to bet fully on remote, uh, remote events. We saw that there were um, many platforms that benefited from that. We could have gone this way, but we always felt that we were started as a company to bring people together in real life uh, through live experiences. And, and ex having experienced online events ourselves, because that, that was the only way to engage at the very early days of COVID, we, we felt it was missing something. And it's not just the interface. I think it's just you don't have as much patience uh, online. You, a two-hour event is already a very long event. Uh, whereas in real life, when you have a variety of engagement, um, physical contact, physical formats that are much more conducive to multi-day events, for example, and much more enriching, I think our, our pyramid of uh, needs has connectivity and social bonding as one of the base layer. Uh, and we wanted to stay the platform for live events, physically live, not just online live. Yeah. Um, I, I, I really can, 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 can second that. Like we, we, we also with, with my other company, OMR, we also went through that process of like canceling everything and, uh, just, yeah. Um, realizing, okay, this, this, this is not going to happen at least this year. Um, and, and we're not, uh, investing into, into like, or not fully investing into, into virtual events, but only do partly, uh, or parts of the, of the, of the event online. I, mean, I think the combination of uh, big live events with some more focused online events uh, can be very powerful for a brand that wants to engage with a, a global audience. Obviously. Definitely, you don't have to take a plane. It's much easier. You can uh, lower the bar for accessibility um, and everyone can profit, I think, from finding the right combination of formats that 
uh, bring the most to the audience. Uh, but still, I think online events are, are just not as a quality and experience than physical events can be. Yeah. And also the, the the quality of networking after everyone invested so much time into traveling um, is is I think also one of one of the the, the positive uh, side effects, right? I've met so many friends in online in tech events in physical tech events by just going there and randomly bumping into someone who knows someone, having dinner with a bunch of unknowns. That I, I could see how online doesn't replicate that at all, and this means many attempts of creating that social bonding layer online as well. But it's just not the same. You don't spend as much time. I see it on online events. Everybody logs off five, ten minutes before the event ends. Nobody joins the networking sessions, mm -hmm. and the networking sessions are harder to ma to uh, make vibrant because it depends highly on who's in the room and why you're there. Uh, versus just bumping into someone who's done something great at the coffee line at a tech conference. Obviously. So um, with with COVID um, happening back then, um, like describe that that moment when you realized, okay, this this is it for for a while at least. Like, were you hesitant or? I mean, I, I think we were unprepared, as many businesses were. Uh, unprepared in in how fast it became reality i think we all were seeing seeing the in the tea leaves that something big was coming because the news was quite uh, dramatic i would say in in how fast the virus was spreading maybe what we couldn't anticipate was the response of governments around the world shutting down everything and being going into confinement so quickly um And it's very hard to future-proof your business when you don't have visibility or cannot plan years of month ahead. Um, so we had to react, and we did react in, in a big way, I think, uh, compared to other companies. Um, we also had a major disadvantage in that we we had um, part of our business is that we we give ticket sales, uh, we send ticket sales to the uh, event organizers before the event happens. And we knew that with the shutdown of all the economies, a lot of event organizers will ha would have to either refund their attendees or postpone their events or could go bankrupt as a result of, of COVID. So we had uh, 350 million, I think, in advances to event creators uh, around the world that were at risk. So it was a big question mark. Are we, are we going to lose the business because we didn't have 350 million in cash lying around for uh, paying angry customers wanting their money back? So we did go into product building mode, trying to find the best way for event organizers to manage uh, their cancellation, postponements. I think attendees were very understanding. They were all stuck at home and really wanted to go to these events. So they very much understood that the organizer postponed until the year after, for example. So in the end, we, we didn't have much uh, loss linked to that, uh, but we had to build a lot of product features. Mm. Uh, attendee credits, for example, things instead of sending them cash, we send them credits for buying uh, the next event. Um, we also had to reduce our workforce by 45%, and that happened in April 2020. So that's when I say we reacted quickly. That, that's mm. the type of mm. swift mm. action we had to take. March 2020 was the realization, like, oh, shit, 
something big is happening. We need to fix the business in order to survive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then April, we had the layoffs. And we, I think by May, we had raised additional capital to be able to survive um, the loss of 90% of our revenue in one month. Wow. <laughs> but 10% was still there? Stressful time. 10% was still there? We already had some online events features. So they okay. were mostly online events. And yeah events in places that were not impacted yet. And the virus didn't spread globally in one day. It took a while for some of the countries where we do business to actually uh, be exposed to the pandemic. Yeah, um, uh, must have must have felt crazy. Like, was that the first time when you had to do layoffs or? Yeah, actually it was the first time. Uh, we did some light ones at some point, but in, in this big way, for sure. I mean, only a cataclysmic event would have caused us to do that because we, it's not the type of company we are. We, we care a lot about our employees and we had to let go of very talented people, for sure. So it was not a, a let's get rid of the the non-performing employees. Was, we had to change strategy. So to decide who to cut. Um, and that, that was a very act in an accelerated path because we didn't have much time. And I mean, it's a, it's a hard topic, but do you have um, recommendations on how to prepare better? I mean, uh, like a lot of people talk about recession these days. A lot of companies actually cut down on costs, um, uh, let go a few employees. Um, Any, any recommendation you, you would give uh, knowing that this, this could come? Um, yes, for sure. I, I, think, I think having enough cash on hand to survive for 18, 24 months today is a necessity. Like You don't know when your next round is going to come. The venture capital world has gone very cold and, and not taking as much risk for businesses that are maybe not growing as fast as others. So depending on your growth trajectory, I think being very conservative with cash is, is a must for businesses today. Um, it's easier to do for a small business because you don't have much burn and you can predict pretty well how your growth curve is going to evolve. For much larger businesses, it's hard. Like if you're losing 50, 100 million a year and, and your growth numbers are, are not great, then raising a big C or D round might yeah. become very difficult. Yeah, and, and your VCs maybe even cheered you to burn more quicker to... <laughs> well, they did in 2021. But... Yeah. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, no one picks up the phone anymore. <laughs> exactly. I had one company like that. Like they were yeah. about to raise their CVC and eventually went bankrupt because they couldn't yeah. afford the payroll anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. cash is still the number one killer of startups. We shouldn't forget that. And I think actually, I mean, you're now um, a venture partner at Point Nine, um, and Point Nine is, is is well known for their good SaaS investments. And and I think, um, yeah, the SaaS world is kind of um, where where reality just just entered the room, right? Um, for sure, I think a uh, uh, different reality. reality, a different reality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you're in the SaaS business as well. So, you know, the, the drill, I think only the best platforms are able to raise from venture capital these days. Yeah. And you need to have 3x growth over year over year in the early stage to be able to interest the venture world. Uh, because the, 
the public valuations have gone down so much that you need to be in the best of breed to expect um, being able to raise sufficient uh, rounds from the top VCs, at least in SaaS. There's still a lot of space to be had in, in B2B. So I'm, I'm still bullish that there will be a lot of exciting companies coming out. But the expectations in terms of execution are, are much, much higher. And the VCs have time now because there's no like term sheet the next day type <laughs> of deal anymore. Uh, evaluations have gone down. People are just more conservative. And that's a natural correction. I think that's probably healthy for the industry overall. Uh, maybe it's also good for like look coming back to tech. Uh, maybe maybe it's good for 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 our our species, right? Um, everyone these days, everyone wants to just do what the big techs are doing. Like use I don't know Kubernetes, use single page web apps, use this and this and that, um, without ever thinking thinking of the 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 resources and resource usage you 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 have and and how many resources you actually waste. Um, I think that will like potentially be a mind shift now. Well, I think the most forward companies are definitely thinking about their carbon footprint, if, if that's what you were referring to. I think there's there's waste in resource, human resources needing to power those and handle the complexity that these technologies bring. But there's also the computational uh, consumption that's more and more top of mind as people, companies, especially digital businesses, do their uh, carbon footprint and realize that a lot of it is being spent on their servers. Um, so I think we'll see a, a green um, conscience evolve in engineering as well. And it's not just going to be about uh, the ROI on computational cost, but also on uh, their overall footprint in, in the world. And the big tech is definitely on top of that. Like they're investing in Google, for example, is investing in energy production. Uh, green alternatives are coming online every day. And But you have to think about that, I think, as, as a business today. Yeah. Well, you you have to, but um, Google, for example, I mean, employees still fly a lot, right? Um, and I think that 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 applies to all big techs. Uh, I mean, that changed a lot with 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 uh, Corona as well. But um, I I don't know how Paul. I think they fly a lot, but still much less than they used to, and much much less without thoughts. I mean, there's still some. Uh, comfort, I think, from companies making billions in, in profit. But for uh, your average company, I, I think that becomes a much bigger topic. How do you spend your your uh, carbon dollars, I would say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, And you have to manage them just like any budget. So I think we'll see definitely tools that help companies think in those terms. Uh, what is the cost environmentally of each trip that I'm taking and is it worth doing? Sometimes it is for sure. You still have a business to run. You need that cohesion that comes from meeting in real life. Um, but maybe you don't need to have uh, all hands with your thousand employees uh, in an exotic location for seven days. Mm, mm. Uh, like the famous Uber parties that were happening in the past decade. <laughs> uh, like, honestly, I, I was more referring to like the technical um ways that you have but um i i found that i find it quite a quite an interesting topic like do you personally track your co2 um co2 uh, consumption or 
I've calculated it, and I know that it highly depends on most mostly flights and yeah. cross transcontinental flights, especially. So I'm, I've tried to reduce as much as possible these because they're eighty percent of your footprint if you're traveling a lot. So that that is the biggest um, saving you can have. After that, your home, uh, your eating habits, and I definitely eat less meat. And I know in Germany, it's it's a big trend uh, having a very pronounced um, reduction in, in animal consumption. And that's great. I think we're going to see that spread around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have a, a tool you, you used or an app you used that you recommend? No, I haven't found the one. There was a group that did that very informally, but I, I think It's still very complicated to calculate precisely. Like, it depends what you buy, like new products. I, we try to buy, we just had a baby and 80% of the clothes that she's wearing are uh, secondhand clothes. Yeah. That, that, yeah. that has been I mean, a big for babies, uh, like babies never exactly. realize so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But even for us, like we, we look at that first instead yeah. of looking at new. Yeah. 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 Um, that, that so there's really a consumer, consumer mind shift for sure. It's happening. People are not don't have blinders on, they, they understand that every action has a, a price to pay at some point. But I think it's still happening quite slowly, right? Uh, I mean, there, there, there have been some wake-up calls, I guess, but um, still like... Well, it's more, I think everybody has taken, or is aware that it's happening and that their behavior has an impact on it. But changing behavior is always harder, for sure, yeah. especially when you're talking about what you eat every day. Yeah, For example, yeah, yeah. that is a big one that requires a, a deeper commitment to the cause. Obviously, um, but 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 coming back to to technology, um, I mean, you these days you um, don't do lots of code, I guess, or uh, don't 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 code anymore at possible. all. But do, do you do you still have like if you would start from scratch now, uh, and you would start, let's say, a B 2 B SaaS. Where would you start? Would you would you again start with like a, a Python script and <laughs> keep it simple, or what would be your 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 recommendation for the starting point? Um, I, I think in the spirit of reducing complexity, and and I would look at serverless technologies that remove the need to handle hardware. I mean, when we started, we had physical servers in in a closet somewhere. And that was definitely a dependency we didn't need, a concern that weighs on you and prevents you from scaling. So there were many reasons why uh, DevOps, I think, is becoming less and less something companies want to deal with. So we think about that. How can I go as long as possible with as little infrastructure as possible and still be able to handle scale much, much easy, more easily than if I had control over the entire setup? I know it's not possible for some applications that require either specific hardware and AI, for example, or, or complex algorithm that uh, costs immensely if you do it serverless way. Um, but definitely I would look into that. I mean, there are a ton of frameworks out there. So think about which ones are the easiest one to understand for a new coder. If you are going to build a team that have the most common language behind them, um, and that do a lot more for you than than uh, others. I'm thinking of the next frameworks or the um, uh, Django. I mean, we use Django, Eventbrite, for example, and it's 
become so powerful, does so much for you in the back in the back end. But um, I would pick test tried and tested technology for sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, Django and like I'm I'm a I'm a Rails person myself, um, and 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 a few others like maybe Laravel in PHP um, mm -hmm. became. Let's say a bit boring um, for 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 developers, I think. Um, but if you're really honest uh, and and you look at them, uh, and you try to really like, if you just build a want want to build a web app, then maybe it's just enough. Um, maybe this boring piece of software that does a lot for you um, is is just enough um, for for most use cases, right? I mean, I wouldn't pick entertainment factor as the main criteria for picking a, a framework. Uh, it's more about functionality. What does it do out of the box that you don't have to rewrite? How many connectors and interfaces it provides to all the other components you need to be going to bring into the mix? And there, it's hard to beat uh, the boring platforms that have been around for 10 plus years and yeah. that have built tremendous support for the entire tech stack that you can be thinking about having versus a new language that has, uh, I don't know, three database layers that you can connect to and you'll have the, you will have to write the next one, which will be a, a yeah. big investment for no return. Yeah, well, but uh, that's how you also started, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think that, but it didn't exist at the time. And Django yeah, yeah. was yeah, yeah. in yeah, for sure. version 0.1, I think, when we started. So it was not usable. For sure, yeah. Um, yeah, I, th I think it really, like, there are some ecosystems around that changed so much um, that it really is it's hard to keep up, right? Like the whole Node yeah. ecosystem and, and all the dependencies that you can introduce there potentially. It's, like, for me, always a nightmare to, to step into that. But, um, yeah, I think it's also, like, Maybe I'm old. That's the downside <laughs> of of uh, complexity and and uh, the profusion of things that have been written for these frameworks. That you have Absolutely. to be very picky about the ones you actually use. Absolutely. So uh, I understood you wouldn't go bare metal again, right? Um, but back then there was no 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 choice, I assume. Was there like? A... I mean, if, if I was doing Bitcoin mining, I would probably go to bare metal. That's still <laughs> how you extract the most. <laughs> ROI from, from your investment. Um, but otherwise, no. And dealing with hardware is something I, I don't know many developers who enjoy that part. Yeah. Um, some, some do, and that's great that we have them. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a complexity that you don't really need, especially as you're starting your business. Yeah. The, the frills of um, uh, understanding that there's just a broken switch somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> or a broken cable, yeah. Um, yeah that, that is what 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 many also don't remember, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it is. On the other hand, like there recently has been like lots of discussions around the efficiency of the cloud, right? Um, if you if you see what you can do with a cloud machine um, versus like a, a real consumer CPU. Um, it, it differs by a lot. Uh, I mean, you have the the simplicity of the cloud. Um, yeah, I think when you get to massive scale and, and the cost of your uh, computation becomes a much greater percentage of your revenue, then it makes sense. I think potentially yeah. to go back to bare metal, yeah. understanding that you'll have to offset that saving with many more people in, internally to manage all that. Yeah, but true at Google scale, you you need 
you have your own bare metal or your own data centers. Yeah, even. yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was recently like a discussion uh, kicked off by David Heinemar Hensen, the um, uh, Rails uh, inventor. Um, Uh, and, and and he said that they they are moving back to bare metal um, for Basecamp, but I think for that maturity, like as as long as you, uh, or as soon as you uh, uh, let's say have over two, three, four million in revenue, it, it might make sense to to consider that even if you. Uh, but you you have to be realistic on the total cost of ownership, right? Yeah, I would say more a hundred million than two or three million. You would you would say more more hundred million? <laughs> I, I think they're not there. Um, no, I don't, I don't think they are. So I, I don't know if it makes sense. It's up well, to them. Really. I, I don't know. But yeah, it's up to them. They, they're about optimizing the business at this point. They're not yeah. About, yeah. Uh, growing from VCs. They decided to go the uh, self-funded routes. Yeah. yeah. It makes sense to rationalize the costs. Yeah. Well, I mean, Kubernetes um, exists for bare metal as well, right? I mean, you can essentially build your own cloud and it's... Um, It's okay effort-wise, but but still, like uh, having to maintain that all, and having to maintain, I don't know, an Elasticsearch server somewhere <laughs> or a cluster somewhere. Um, that's even harder, right? Um, it's possible. But it's possible. A choice like a, <laughs> has to be a very conscious choice that has implications over the long term that you need to modelize if you're uh, going to go that route. Yeah, obviously, we we just um, did like a um, a bigger article. Um, around the topic after after David um uh pulled out his one uh like happy to publish it maybe maybe um at, at the same time as the podcast looking forward to that um but well uh, like maybe like the, the 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 last questions from my end um like was there ever a moment at Eventbrite and I don't know if you really acted as CTO when COVID hit the company. I mean, you, you went through like a long journey at Eventbrite from 2006 to then like 2019-20. Was there other moment when you realized, okay, maybe I'm not needed anymore or <laughs> like, it, it, like just guessing? I think any good CTO should not want or should want to not be there anymore yeah. in a way that they organize the teams and the, the, put the thought process in place to make sure you have the right people in the right place below you. So that's why I tried to do. I, w I wasn't CTO at COVID anymore because I, I wanted to explore investment and as, as part of the deal, I couldn't manage the team anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but until then, until 2018, I was definitely hands-on thinking about, what is the next big project I can run instead of um, just doing management? I think what ends up happening with a lot of founder CTOs is they do all the technical work at the beginning. And then as the team scales, they start doing more and more management strategy, uh, organizing teams. And that's fine for some, but I always like building and I always found it more impactful for me to spend time on whatever the next big project we had was. So that that's how I evolved in the organization by um, every six month, one year, picking whatever was the biggest hurdle to our growth uh, that I could solve with a small team. And I would pick that small team. Internationalization is a good example. The framework we had built uh, and launched even by on wasn't internationalizable. 
So we had to do a lot of work in 2010 when we decided we were going to launch in Europe to make this possible to have a site in French, a site in German, uh, with all the complexity that comes with it. Part of it was moving to Django, which we did, and that was in itself a very uh, heavy effort. Uh, but then there was uh, all the string extractions, the automation of the translations, and taxes and all these other features that we had to build to be have an MVP for each country. So that's why I decided to spend time on more recently in the last few years, I've realized or we realized that we needed to diversify our revenue. Until then we were very uh, like purely transactional. A ticket is sold on Eventbrite for a price, we take a commission, that's our business model. Um, we wanted to introduce some recurring revenue. So we looked at all the potential other fields that <clears throat> we could build software on um, and end up picking event marketing as one of the options. So we built a suite of tools. We acquired a company that was doing event marketing and bundled that into a, a SaaS offering for event organizers. Um, so there's always, I think, these large projects that a CTO wants to remain hands-on and not be purely managing, can spend time on them. And those are, I think, the nuggets that enable the, the company to go further and are equally important as to how well you manage your team. But, but then there was like all of a sudden a moment when you realized, okay, this is not for me anymore or? Yeah, I think after we survived COVID and we had a lot of, turnover on the team mm. we 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 hired aggressively once covid passed and we were sound the sound on the financial side uh we started bringing on board very talented people our new cto new cpo new uh management team experienced engineers also came from <clears throat> uh, large tech and at the end of 2021 i realized that Maybe I didn't have it in me to spend the next three or four years on on even bright topics anymore. I think I had uh, exhausted my interest for the space and and my value inside the company because I, I was coding less and less. I was investing on the side more and more as an angel. I was working with venture funds, and I decided that's what I wanted to do full time. So it made sense for me to step down and and go do something else. And 16 years is a long time already, I think. So, <laughs> so um, if I ask you for, for three tips for our listeners, um, then maybe that would be one of your tips. Like, don't stick along, don't stick around too long or... <laughs> I don't think it's don't stick around too long. It's it's find your value inside a growing organization. Mm. And sometimes it's not being attached to titles, I think is can be harmful. Mm. It's more much more important to be fulfilled and working on things you really enjoy rather than keeping a title for posterity's sake and being miserable every day because you hate managing people. I see way too many founders who pigeonhole themselves into uh not doing what they love that's a bit sad like as a founder especially uh, you have a choice as to what you spend your time on and i think you should think about how can i bring the most value to my company every day um, and that's something i tell all the founders i invest in like should if you're not a ceo for this company like 
realize it quickly so you can hire the right person. You're first and foremost a shareholder. And as a shareholder, you should think about what's best for the business um, and make that compatible with what you love doing. And we know life is short, especially after COVID made us realize that uh, sickness can come at any time and, and strike. So uh, being very thoughtful about what you spend your time on, finding the right balance between work and life has always been something I have put a lot of emphasis on and even by especially puts a lot of emphasis on. Okay, great. Um, I have many other tips, but for yeah, many things. Yeah, I think that's a very good one. So I, I think it's, 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 it's fair to, to, to leave with that. Um, on the tech side, I would say not, not, not chasing the the bright shiny stars all the time because that's detrimental. I've seen it happen too many times at Eventbrite as well, where new engineers didn't want to learn the old framework, wanted to introduce theirs. So yeah. the new thing got built in some language that nobody knew. And then one year later, they left and we mm -hmm. left with this piece of software nobody wants to handle. And that happens so frequently that it yeah. makes me sad. Yeah. Do you know anyone who can code Alexia? <laughs> exactly. Who wants to learn? <laughs> no. Okay. Uh, it, did you recently? Um, like I, 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 I see myself uh, like often having those those wow moments with tech again. Um, was, was there like a moment recently in, in in your life when you said, "This is possible, really?" Like, uh, and and you discovered something crazy or? I think it's software, the, the chat GPT is quite amazing. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> I, I, I ask questions all the time now, like just to see what the common wisdom is. And I think that's how we should use them for now. Yeah, yeah. We're not specialized enough, but it's pretty amazing. The articulation of the concepts that the AI is able to produce, especially in a conversational manner. It really feels like humans now. Uh, I know it's not, but the, it opens, I think, a lot of opportunity for better software to be built, um, especially in the B2B space. I, I think we've barely used AI in, in making things that are obvious automated, for example, and make uh, software that's really intelligent and not forcing every time you switch to a new platform to enter many things through forms when you could deduct it from intelligence. So I hope we see a next generation of software that takes advantage of that. Yeah. And then on, on more sciencey type of projects, I, I invest a lot more in climate tech these days and the creativity there is pretty amazing. People bring in technologies from biotech, applying it to how they transform algae to feed cows so they have less methane emissions. I mean, you see pretty crazy projects out there, which makes me hopeful we can find a, a cure to climate change somehow through technology. Yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful there as well. Um, but... but uh, like I, I, I hope that doesn't count as, as 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 being naive if you believe in and take so much that you you think it, it can partly be solved uh, through this. Um, I mean, it's obviously not the solution. I think it's definitely part of the solution. Mm -hmm. It needs to be uh, a combination of political changes, uh, behavior changes, and incentivization of the right technologies to be deployed as as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, but 
a lot of these technologies already exist. If you look at agriculture, there's a McKinsey report that says that outlines exactly how we could reduce the footprint of agriculture by a factor of, I forget, 10x or something like that wow. with existing technology, not with new technology. Wow. That's crazy. So, um, And then we come to my closing surprise for you. Um, uh -oh. one, 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 <laughs> one, one, one thing I just found out, um, uh, and, and actually Julia, your, your co-founder told me at Eventbrite, um, you can use the search um, of Eventbrite um, with um, the term at time machine um, and, and followed by a name and, and a year. Uh, to, to travel back in time, actually, uh, through your, your, your mighty, uh, <laughs> okay, mighty script that, that you wrote back then. <laughs> yeah, you can try it out. And I, I tried it out um, and, and we can now, now, now test it. We can, we can give it a try and travel back, enter time machine, Renault and uh, 2006, um, mm. the, the year you just got started with, with Eventbrite. Um, and we now observe yourself for a while, like coding day and night, crazy times. Um, And you now have the, the, the chance to whisper something um, into young Renaud's ears. What would it be? It's mm, a good question. I think it would be to think more about the future and, and less about the present. We spent a lot of time um, thinking about the next future and all that and to the detriment i think of making a, a platform that could scale very easily for the next engineers that joined we lost a lot of time along the way i think in in uh, upgrading everything to be compatible with a large team um but also to think big i think i i wasn't it was a project at the beginning we were maybe expecting something big could happen but also very pragmatic about not getting too excited and maybe if we had uh, been more ambitious then we could have hired better and and scaled faster in a way but i mean we had the trajectory we had took 16 years some other businesses took less um and i'm still very excited about the event technology space i think there's a lot to build there and That's i hope even by this the platform that will build all these wow moments for people going to events thanks a lot Renaud. <laughs> that was great like lots of Thank learnings you. um and and um uh, hope to to see you again soon uh, yeah. maybe in in real life as well i hope so <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah um look, looking forward to our next discussion sounds good thank you for having me have a great day bye you too bye-bye Thank you for listening to the Alphalist podcast. If you like this episode, share it with friends. I'm sure they'll love it too. Make sure to subscribe so you can hear deep insights into technical leadership and technology trends as they become available. Also, please tell us if there is a topic you would like to hear more about or a technical leader whose brain you would like us to pick. Alphalist is all about helping CTOs getting access to the insights they need to make the best decisions for their company. Please send us suggestions to cto at alphalist.com. Send me a message on LinkedIn or Twitter. After all, the more knowledge we bring to CTOs, the more growth we see in tech. Or, as we say on Alphalist, accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth. See you in the next episode.